What is an argument from silence? What's the big deal about sin? And we take a look at God's omni properties. My name is Hayden Clark, and this is Help Me Believe. An argument from silence is an, a fallacious argument that argues from the silence of or the absence of evidence. So, for example, if I said, I can't find my wallet anywhere, have you seen it, and you simply shrugged your shoulders, and then I said, see, I knew you took my wallet, that would be an argument from silence. The, your silence and, and non-response doesn't mean anything. I can't deduce from that that you took my wallet or that you didn't take my wallet. It just doesn't tell me anything. Silence is not a valid argument. You see this fallacy pop up a lot when it comes to historical investigation. So most recently, I argued that the claim uh, the Gospels were originally anonymous was an argument from silence. I did this in um, one of my m most recent videos. I'll leave a link in the description if you want to watch it. Now, I got some YouTube comments from some atheists that uh, and numerous skeptics that just needed to correct my ignorance. If only I knew that their consensus in the New Testament studies was that the original Gospels were anonymous. And if I only knew that even some Christians admitted this, um, that the original Gospels were anonymous, then I would see the light. I even had somebody uh, link me like uh, two or three articles that laid out the consensus argument for why the consensus believes the uh, original um, Gospels were anonymous, um, as if I wasn't familiar with the consensus argumentation, their style of argumentation. Bart Ehrman is par for the course when it comes to the consensus argument. I've read that and others. I'm well aware of what the consensus argument is, but um, since uh, this got a bit of a response, I thought we might uh, look into it a little closer and see exactly what I mean when I say this is an argument from silence. So the argument is itself is quite simple. That is the argument for why the consensus believes the original uh, Gospels were anonymous. Um, the manuscripts that we have that attribute the Gospels to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are 2nd century fragments and 4th century uh, codexes. The earliest Christians quote the Gospels anonymously. So you may see Justin Martyr refer to the Gospels as um, the memoirs of the apostles. That's supposedly an anonymous reference. Why doesn't he call them by name? Um, and, and then, therefore, it's most likely that the titles were added later. There may be a few other points. It doesn't really matter. That's basically the argument. What I wanted to point out was that if you're going to make the claim the titles were added later, then you have to have earlier manuscripts that don't have the titles, and then later manuscripts that do have the titles, and then say, oh, okay, the earliest manuscripts did not have a title, but the later ones do, therefore they were added later. That's the only way, the only valid way, you can reach that conclusion. Anything else is going to be an argument from silence. Now, this anonymous reference to the Gospels by early Christians like Justin Martyr is brought up to say something like, if the earliest manuscripts included the titles, why did the earliest Christians quote the Gospels anonymously? But this could be explained by a potentially infinite number of reasons. We don't know why. To postulate why would be an argument from silence. But here's some reasons. Why. First of all, it should be pointed out that Memoirs of the Apostles is not an anonymous reference. An anonymous reference would be something like, someone wrote this. 
or somebody wrote that. That would be anonymous. Memoirs of the Apostles at least narrows it down to the Apostles. So the earliest reference you have is to the Apostles. So that would they would be eyewitnesses. So the earliest reference we have are eyewitnesses. So this isn't really getting the skeptic anywhere for sure. So perhaps it was more important to Justin Martyr and the early Christians to point out whose testimony it was, that is, the apostles, as, to, as opposed to specifically whose name. Who knows? You could put forward any explanation you want. It doesn't matter. It's ultimately going to be an argument from silence. What I'm doing right now is an argument from silence. I don't know why he referenced it that way. I can't guess or speculate as to why he did what he did. My explanation is no better than yours. It doesn't matter. We could even say perhaps he didn't even know who wrote them. That doesn't matter at all. Perhaps he just knew that they came from the apostles. Doesn't matter. The point is, that's the point. None of this matters. Because speculating as to why he, he referenced the gospels the way he did has no bearing on anything. It does not matter. It's a non-point. It's a moot point. So then I was reminded um, by the commenters that the consensus is that the original gospels were anonymous. Why would that matter to me? It, it doesn't matter how many people make an argument from silence. All that matters is that it is an argument from silence. So I don't care if everyone else in the entire world wants to make this argument. That's not going to change the fact that it's an argument from silence. I was also made aware, as if I didn't already know, that even some Christian scholars uh, believe that the original Gospels were anonymous. Again, why would that matter to me? Why would their re the religion of the person making an argument from silence matter to me? It, it, it's not a point. It's it's irrelevant to me what their religion is, how many of them, whatever else you can come up with. It does not matter. Unless it changes the fact that it's an argument from silence, it does not matter to me. The problem with this argumentation that the originals were anonymous isn't the facts or the evidence. You've got the evidence and the facts correct. We have early reference to the Gospels that's somewhat ambiguous. I wouldn't say anonymous because Memoirs of the Apostles is not anonymous, but it is a bit ambiguous. I'm glad to grant that. That's fine. Um, you're not wrong about that. That's true. It's also true that we would like earlier manuscripts that attest to the titles. The problem is we don't have any. We only have what we have and we have to work with that and say what's most probable. That's how historical investigation goes. We can't start going off into silence or absence or ignorance and making arguments out of that. That's just pure speculation. It's really just it's really just one of those arguments that's like, well, we'd like to have better evidence, therefore we can't be conclusive. The evidence is there. And would we like to have better evidence? Sure, I'd like to have video evidence. Sure, there would still be doubters, there would still be skeptics, but you can always, you can almost always have better evidence. So just, just make your argument from what we do have. We, we have what we have. Would we like for it to be better? Sure, but again, we, we just have what we have. I don't know what to say. And again, I remind you what it actually looks like to have an anonymous uh, letter. It looks like the book of Hebrews. The earliest copy of the book of Hebrews we have is actually anonymous. And then later copies have titles on, the, titles on them that attest the book of Hebrews to contradictory authors. So some will say it was Paul, and some will say you know, Barnabas or whoever. But the, the earliest one is anonymous. We do not have that with the Gospels. With the Gospels, every manuscript we have without contradiction, attributes the authors to Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
and John. So the problem with the uh, anonymous gospel theory is that there's no anonymous manuscripts. Zero. Now, some might try to say, well, we're not saying for sure with certainty that the originals were anonymous. To say that would be an argument from silence. We're just saying most probably it was most probably originally anonymous. No, this doesn't get you anywhere either. The point about making an argument from silence is that it doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't raise the scale of probability either. It doesn't do anything. It's just silence. So in summary on this, to repeat myself, what you need to argue for an anonymous an anonymous gospel is what we have for Hebrews. You have to have an earlier anonymous manuscript with later non-anonymous manuscripts so you can say, well, they clearly just added the titles later. And by the way, even if someone adds titles later, doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong. They could be. But that would at least raise the probability. And then you also need contradictory attributions. So you can say, well, the later uh, attributions are contradictory in, as, as to who actually wrote them. As it is, we have neither for the Gospels, and any argument that the Gospels were originally anonymous by necessity will be an argument from silence. I don't care if the consensus makes this argument. I don't care if Christians make this argument. All that matters to me is that it most certainly is an argument from silence. Therefore, it's fallacious and null, void. It doesn't mean anything. Speaking of bad arguments, let's take a look at why sin is so bad. But before we get to that, let me first say thank you to our patron supporters. It's because of your support. I get to do what I do here by producing free content that uh, spreads the truth and defends the truth of Christianity. So thank you so much for that. If uh, you too can become a supporter of Help Me Believe just by following the Patreon link in the description below, uh, labeled Support Help Me Believe and becoming a patron supporter for as little as a dollar a month, and there's different levels there for you to choose from. Uh, with your support, you get access to bonus content and all sorts of stuff over at Patreon. Again, thanks so much for your support. We have a real tendency to downplay uh, the seriousness of sin. In fact, I would say that a lot of people don't um, convert to Christianity or see the need to place their faith in Jesus because they don't see the need to repent of sin because... We downplay sin. We don't even really know what sin is or why it's so bad. We say things in this culture like, well, it's not hurting anyone, so who are you to judge? Or it doesn't affect you, so why do you care so much? And I think at least partially this comes from a political state of mind. If you haven't noticed, we pretty much worship politics in this country. Uh, I'm in the United States, by the way. Um, with regard to policy, we more or less have adopted the standard of if it doesn't harm others, um, I should be able to do it that is under the law. And that's fine. That's probably a good way for um, making laws in a pluralistic society. But when we talk about sin, we're not talking about um, policy. So I think this political mindset carries over into our way of thinking about sin, or at least that makes sense to me, uh, makes sense of how to th uh, think about this. But breaking the law the political law like of this nation, and sinning are two obviously uh, different, though sort of related things. Uh, breaking the law under normal circumstances is sinful if that law is just. However, sin is not just confined to mere uh, obedience or lack of obedience uh, to a political law. Uh, you probably know this, of course, and this all seems trivial, but I think this is the kind of mindset that we bring to the table when we start thinking of why is sin so bad. And I think it's pretty pervasive. Um, so this may be trivial, but I think it's worth mentioning. 
So what is sin? What exactly is sin? Well, I find it helpful to think of sin as missing the mark, which is indeed exactly what the Greek word means in the New Testament. And so I find this concept especially helpful whenever I'm thinking about sin from a philosophical position, which I want to address first. We will return to what the Bible says about sin. I find it helpful to think of things philosophically. From a philosophical perspective, all human beings act, that is, we act, with the good in mind. That's why we do what we do. We find whatever it is that we're going to do good, and so we do it. That's that's why you do everything you do. You can't avoid that. So whenever you take an action, you take it because you think it will fulfill or perfect uh, you as a human being. It'll perfect your human nature. That's why we do what we do. Uh, the question, of course, is was your assessment correct? Will this actually fulfill your human nature? Is this actually good for you? And if it's not, then that's what we call sin, and if it is, then that's what we call good. So sin could be equivalent or equivalent with evil or not good. So in the case where an action is taken that does not fulfill you as a human being, in the philosophical sense, again, fulfill your human nature, but actually does violence to your human nature, and that is what it means to be a human, that would be sin or missing the mark. You aimed to do the good. You thought this would fulfill you as a human being, but indeed it did not. It missed the mark, which is, again, as I said from the beginning, is actually uh, pretty analogous to what we read in the New Testament. So if you're thinking, that sounds like there is a selfish reason to behave morally and not just out of pure obedience to God, you're correct. Sin, missing the mark, taking an action that does violence to human nature, is actually bad for you. It does violence to your human nature. So there's obviously a selfish reason to obey God's law and not sin. So why do we need the Bible to tell us how to live or whatever? It's a different question that we could get into some other time. Suffice it to say, yes, we still need the Bible, God's special revelation, to teach us how to live morally and um, how to not miss the mark. I'm not saying we don't even need the Bible because we can do these things philosophically. I'm not saying that, so don't say that I am. But why does God care about this? Why does he care if we miss the mark or not? So when we turn to the Bible, we see that God creates humanity with a purpose, and that is to multiply and fill the earth with his quote-unquote image. God creates humanity in his own image and tells them to multiply and fill the earth. In this way, God will be glorified in all the earth through his willingly loyal vice regents or representatives. So God creates humans as literally just representatives of himself, that is, imagers of himself, and to fill the earth and in so doing, we would we will reflect God's glory in all the earth. That's kind of the, the upshot of that. So God puts humanity here on earth to rule over it and in this way reflect him or image him. We are his imagers. God created us in his image. And that's just what the word means. So bearing, uh, being an image bearer is to reflect God, and that is why he made us, to reflect him, which is a relational description. He wants to be in a willingly obedient relationship with beings, human beings, that reflect him. So um, that is what God wants from humanity. He wants to be in that relationship, that right relationship, where we reflect his nature. And God's nature is goodness. He is a perfect being. And God wants to be in a relationship with us, as I said, where we reflect that aspect of him um, as imagers, um, beings created in his image. 
Now, the problem in a word is sin. We throw, we throw a wrench in all of this when we, like Adam, um, willfully disobey God. So in order to have this sort of relationship, God has given us a free will. He wants us to, uh, of our own free will, reflect him, and in that way glorify him throughout all the earth. But we use our free will for selfish reasons, just like Adam and Eve did, um, to try to usurp God's authority, uh, obtain wisdom from, for ourselves and for our own purposes. And, um, and in so doing, we do violence to our own human nature because our human nature is to reflect God. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And so when we don't do that, we are missing the mark. Hosea 6, 7 says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So the Old Testament uses Adam's transgression as an analogy to describe Israel's faithlessness to the covenant they, as a nation, made with God. So by nature of being a human being, in an analogous sense of way, you're in a covenant with God. If, if you find that unfair, like, I didn't ask to be created in God's image and in this way be in a covenant with Him of sorts, I don't know what to tell you. Would you rather not exist? I'm not sure. Um, by the way, you don't have to obey this covenant with God. You, uh, He's given you f the freedom of the will, and uh, you can do as you please, just like Adam and Eve did, and all of us do. We're all sinners, and you can never repent if you don't want to. That's your choice. You don't have to reflect God. But to return to the Genesis story, Adam usurps God's wisdom and creation. He obtains a wisdom of his own, and he disobeys God. And essentially, his sin was uh, reaching for wisdom outside of God's provision and providence. And the bait for getting Adam to do so was the allure of becoming like God, as the serpent said to him. Uh, they were basically giving, uh, they're basically giving God the finger and, and just uh, telling him that they would do things as they saw fit. They would do things in their own wisdom. Uh, they didn't need uh, God. And as the Proverbs say, there is a way that seems right to a man, but leads to death. And the consequence for uh, dethroning God and disobeying him is death. As the New Testament says, the wages of sin is death. And so God told Adam that he would surely die. He would return to the dust. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, and so they would not live in such a guilty state forever by eating from the tree of life. They are removed from... Um, the state of bliss and innocence that God created for them, and they no longer have access to the tree of life. God does not want man to live in a state of guilt forever, like Adam and Eve. That's why he kicked them out of the garden, so they wouldn't eat from the, the fruit. But this is the state in which we find ourselves. Um, as C.S. Lewis points out in his Mere Christianity, we all recognize that there is a moral, a transcendent moral law, and we all know that we sometimes break it, and yet, and therefore we feel guilty for it. So we all just, through reason, recognize, again, there's a objective moral law. We sometimes break it. That makes us lawbreakers. Uh, we feel guilty. And the reason we feel guilty is because we know that lawbreakers should be punished. And that is the state in which we find ourselves. So before turning to the guilt, uh, I do want to point something out. This understanding is exactly why God's commands should not be viewed as a buzzkill, as some people view them. Some people think God gives commands because he's a, a pernicious sky daddy that just uh, wants to bark down orders on his creation or something like that. 
you could not f possibly get that picture of God if you've ever read the Old or New Testament. That's not what God is. I don't care what Richard Dawkins or whoever says. If you read the Old and New Testament, you cannot walk away, honestly, you can't honestly walk away thinking that that's who God is, that he's some, um, you know, omniscient dictator in the sky or something. That's not who God is, and the Old or New Testament does not describe him in such a way. God gives commands because he's omniscient. He knows what will perfect human nature, and that's what he wants. He wills the good of man, and then he commands that we do that which will uh, benefit us, that will lead to the fulfillment and the perfection of our own human nature. That's what God's commands are. That's the motivation you see in the scriptures. So this childish, childish, teenagish view of God as dictator in the sky or whatever is just absolutely ridiculous. And God gives commands because he knows what will fulfill human nature. That's how we should understand God's commands. Now, back to our guilt. We exist in a state of having broken the moral law, and we are aware, or we are aware of our own guilt and the need for justice. And the Bible tells us that the just penalty is death. Why? The offense is, is so great because uh, the one whom we have offended is infinitely holy. God is wholly other than us. His nature is something... Um, with which we are not even familiar with. There, there just is no comparison. When we say God is like X, Y, or Z, we are speaking analogously because we, we can't even fully know what the nature of God actually is. That is what it means when we say God is holy. And sin, disobeying, disobeying the moral law, is an offense to the moral lawgiver. God created us for this purpose. We miss the mark intentionally because we have the freedom of the will to do so and therefore we stand in want of God's justice and the 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 law that we have broken has been set up by the completely holy God of the universe and the punishment is death so the punishment is steep because the offense is steep you may not think it is steep but whenever you transgress the moral law you're not just transgressing any law you're transgressing the God of this universe's law and so it is an, a, a, a steep offense whenever we um, usurp God's authority and do as we please so we're in deep crap with God uh, that's the upshot of it all however this c catastrophe is not what God desires it's not what he wants that's not his will in Ezekiel 18:32, God says I take no pleasure in the death of anyone later in Ezekiel 33:11, 11 uh, God says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that he wants everyone to repent turn from sin and live this assumes that the punishment for sin is death, by the way, and that if you repent of sin and turn to God, you will live. Now, the New Testament follows in like step. It says in 1 Timothy 2.4, God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants everyone to be saved from the curse of sin, death, and to have a knowledge of the truth, eternal life through Jesus. Through Jesus, yes, this is the good news. This is the good part. So the curse that has held man down since the time of Adam has now been lifted. In grand design, God sent his son to, as Hebrews 2.9 says, taste death for everyone. In Adam, the archetypal, archetypal human, sin, and consequently death, entered into the world, as we read in the book of Romans. In Jesus, the second archetypal man, 
Sin and death were defeated at the cross, and where Adam failed, Jesus prevailed. He felt the curse of sin, death, and he conquered it by rising from the dead. That's what the theology of that is, anyway. In doing so, Jesus has, quote, destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and could set free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery throughout all their lives. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. We were slaves to death, living under the curse of sin, but Jesus through his death and resurrection has stolen the keys from our previous master and set us free. He became like us, human, in order to mediate between us and God, who of course he is himself. God became man in order to rescue man from the curse of sin, which is death. And there's, there's one verse in the New Testament that I really like that summarizes all of this nicely. It's 1 Corinthians 15:22, and it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But one must be in Christ, as the verse says, in order to be made alive. How does one become in Christ? Glad you asked. In Ephesians 1, uh, we read that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace in Ephesians 1.7. Later in the same chapter, uh, Paul goes on to say that in Christ, quote, when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So, how do you become in Christ? By believing. And when do you become in Christ? At the moment you believe. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is what you must believe in order to be, quote, in Christ. And once you are in Christ, you will be made alive to live eternally in right relationship with your Creator, which was God's plan from the beginning. And if you do not want this, you're free to reject it. That is not what God wants, as He has made abundantly clear throughout His Word, but He leaves it to your decision. You may reject Him. But rejecting God ends in death and destruction, as we're told. And likewise, we can reason to this. If God created us for the purpose of being in relationship with Him, we should expect that using our free will to reject His purposes and live for something else will ultimately be less than fulfilling or satisfactory or perfective of our human nature. We're not saying that you're going to be a miserable old bat or something like that, but only that there will always be something missing. If you do not live for that purpose for which you were created, Something will be missing, namely the perfection of your nature. So, in summary, we should note a few things. Number one, to be human is to be an imager of God. That is the purpose of being a human. That is the nature of being a human. If you use uh, number two, if you use your free will to not image or reflect God, you should expect to be less than satisfied, fulfilled, or perfected as a human being. Number three, you also have a moral obligation to live as an imager of God. You, know, you have a moral uh, obligation to live for that purpose for which your Creator created you. Number four, if you use your free will to not image or reflect God, um, you should expect to experience guilt for breaking God's universal moral law. Number five, the punishment for this breaking of the law is death. Number six, in likeness with Adam, we have all sinned and we all therefore deserve to die. And number seven, Jesus defeated sin and death by experiencing death and rising from the grave. Number eight, and finally, we can enjoy Jesus' victory by believing in his uh, work and professing him as Lord. 
So the last thing I want to look at today is God's omni properties or one of God's omni properties. I find that this is a topic uh, of which there's a lot of confusion. It's confusing to think about God being all-powerful, um, all-knowing, uh, all-present or, or whatever else, all-good. Um, and so I found an article that I really liked and I wanted to share. Um, it's an article that you can find at genejones.net, and it is titled, Five Things Christians Christians Should Know About God's Omnipresence. So we'll specifically be looking at omnipresence. So the first thing that Christians should know, uh, she says, is that omnipresence means that God's presence fills the universe. God says in Jeremiah 23, 24, do I not fill the heavens and the earth? That's, of course, a rhetorical question to which the answer is a resounding yes, of course he does. Uh, he created the heavens and the earth and his spirit, his presence fills it. Contemplating uh, God's omnipresence always makes me think of the Aristotelian proof of God's existence or the first way of Thomas Aquinas, uh, which terminates in an unactualized actualizer or an unmoved mover, you may have heard, uh, of the existence of all contingent things. So the universe that you experience with your senses, including yourself, is contingent. Um, this means that it, doesn't, it didn't have to exist and it could not exist. There's a time when you didn't exist, and there's a time going to be a time when you don't exist, at least in the form of which you exist now. As such, its existence is not in and of itself uh, or necessary and must be actualized by something that is already actual. Aristotle and Aquinas show why a causal series of this kind cannot go on infinity, uh, but it must actually terminate in a first cause. And so this first cause would be the actualizer of the existence of every contingent thing at every moment. At every moment, God is causing things to exist. And so Gene points out that uh, omnipresence is frightful for the sinner because nothing goes unnoticed by God. Nothing escapes his judgment. He sees all because he is present everywhere. However, his presence is obviously comfort to those uh, who belong to him. His own find comfort in his omnipresence. Those who belong to God are not worried about his presence. They are glad to know that their Heavenly Father is always near, even when they don't really feel his presence. Gene's next point is that God is, this, this omnipresence does not mean that God is creation. Uh, when we say God is everywhere, I don't mean that God literally is this table. I mean, it means what the first uh, definition was, that his presence fills the universe. And we can know that this isn't possible through the Aristotelian argument itself. Um, that, which is un, that which is the unactualized actualizer of the existence of all contingent things could not itself be equated with those contingent things. Then you would have the contradiction of an unactualized actualizer being actualized or actualizing itself. So it is actually logically impossible that God could be equated with creation. Hence, pantheism is impossible. However, as Gene uh, points out, God does reveal himself through physical means from time to time. God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. He spoke to Moses in the burning bush. He led Israel in the wilderness by cloud and pillar of smoke. The Old Testament figure known as the angel of the Lord seems to be a physical manifestation of God. And, of course, God became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. So while some of this may be mysterious, mysterious it should not be understood that God is those things, but God is manifest manifesting himself, excuse me, God is not those physical things, but that God is manifesting himself through those physical means. So the question that often comes up is, uh, when this happens, when these, it's called a theophany, when God reveals himself in this way, when this happens, does God become limited to those 
particular places and times? Is he limited by that physical nature? No, he's always present in all places. Uh, the difference is only that in those particular places and times, his presence becomes sensible. That is, visible, audible, touchable, that sort of thing. It then becomes detectable by the five senses. So God is with me right now in this room. His presence fills the entire universe. He's omnipresent. That doesn't mean I can see him, hear him, or feel him, but he's here. And if he were to manifest himself in some way, like in the ways we were talking about in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, then I would be able to see him. Like his presence was already here. It would just become visible or audible, that sort of thing. That's what we mean whenever by these theophanies. We don't mean that God himself, the infinite God of the universe, just becomes cram-packed into one spatial location. That's misunderstanding. His presence is always everywhere, and at special times and places, it becomes sensible. Fourth, uh, Gene points out that God limits how much his presence is felt by human beings. So, so you might think of the um, problem of divine hiddenness, where if God exists, why is he going to such great lengths to be uh, hidden? Why can't I see him? That sort of stuff. Why doesn't he reveal himself to all of us the way that he did in those special ways in the Old Testament New Testament? Um, I've written about this before, why I don't think this is... A lot of Christians see this and say that it's a, a really strong argument. I've argued argued elsewhere as to why I don't think that's the case, and you can go look on the blog and search Divine Hiddenness if you want to read about that. Um, but uh, the author of this article takes us to C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, where Screwtape writes to his uncle Wormwood uh, that where they, as the demons, can drag people into vice, right, just constantly tempting, constantly uh, tempting the freedom of the will that we have to go and do what they want, that God cannot do the same exact thing. And if you think that was a heck of a thing for me to say, you're correct, but I'm going to have a pretty good explanation. The explanation is, what does God want from us? And uh, C.S. Lewis argues throughout the book that God doesn't want us to be dragged into obedience. He wants us to become virtuous over time, and that would require... Um, him not constantly overriding our free will to get us to do that which he wants us to do. If he did that, we wouldn't become virtuous. We, we, in no way, shape, or form could we describe ourselves as virtuously or willfully following God. He would just have been overriding our freedom of the will the whole way to get us to do what he wants. And so, yeah, we're so sinful that if he leaves us to our own devices... We'll probably never choose him because the temptations are, uh, you know, abundant or however you want to describe it. So the only thing for God to do, if he wants to do this, so to be clear, he could override our will. Yes, he's all-powerful as well. He can do that if he wants. But that's the point. It's not what he wants. What he wants is for us to become virtuous by willfully following him. He wants that kind of a relationship for us to willfully follow him. So... If you were to, again, to repeat myself one more time, if you were to override our freedom of the will all the time, um, then we, uh, you know, we wouldn't become that which he wants us to become. So what he does is throughout, from time to time, he does manifest himself in obvious ways that cannot be denied. And uh, other times there's just enough evidence to believe and just enough evidence to not believe if you so choose. Um, I, at least that's the argument that she's making in the article. And um, I think it makes a bit of sense. 
Lastly, she points us to the book of Revelation, where we read, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's in Revelation 21.3. One more from Revelation 22.4 says, They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. So when we, when we contemplate God's omnipresence, God being with us, uh, the New Testament tells us that God's Spirit dwells within us, but Revelation promises us, promises us that there will be a time in the new heavens and the new earth when God recreates creation. He will be physically present with us on the new earth in a more glorious, uh, resurrected kind of a way. And so it's easy to forget with all the emphasis that we give to heaven, like how we get to heaven, what's heaven going to be like, that sort of stuff. It's easy to forget that that's not our final destination. Our final destination is the new earth and the new Eden where we will live bodily with God incarnate. Of course, that is Jesus. Well, that's all for today. Thanks so much uh, for joining me. If you enjoyed the episode, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, leave us a review if you're listening to the podcast. And of course, if you want to get more content or just become a supporter of the podcast, greatly appreciate that. You can follow the Patreon link in the description below, labeled support, help me believe, and become a supporter for as little as a dollar a month. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you next time. My name's Hayden Clark, and this is Help Me Believe.